I'm Meg Malone, Vermont Edition digital producer. And I'm Vermont Edition producer Sam Gill-Rosen. Earlier this summer, Vermont Edition spoke with the leading candidates in the gubernatorial race, hearing their views on the top issues facing the state in a series we called Meet the Candidates. In advance of the Vermont primary on August 9th, we've gathered our conversations with all five candidates together in one podcast. In June, Jane Lindholm spoke with Democrat Sue Minter about her positions on gun control, marijuana legalization, health care, and more. Here's the interview. Enjoy. Sue Minter, welcome back to Vermont Edition. Great to be here, Jane. Let's start with an issue that's on the minds of many, given the news that we're still learning about and digesting from Orlando, and that is, of course, gun rights and gun restrictions. Lisa in Stowe emailed in to say, I am now a single-issue voter. What is your position on the sale of assault weapons, restricting those on the terrorist watch list from the ability to buy firearms and other common-sense gun restrictions? Well, thank you for that question. And of course, Orlando is on all of our minds. Uh, Certainly my heart and all of ours does go out to the victims and their families. And sadly, it's not the only tragedy. You know, just since I began running for governor, there have been a series of assaults. Uh, And this has really been an issue that I stepped forward with early in my campaign uh, after the tragedy in Colorado with a Planned Parenthood. Uh, And I decided to support strong measures to uh, promote gun safety uh, with background checks for all uh, gun sales. And I'll tell you why. You know, people tell me that we don't have a problem here in Vermont, um, but I know we do. And it often is behind closed doors, Jane. Uh, I will tell you that domestic Homicides are high. In fact, in Vermont, we have the eighth highest rate of domestic homicides in the country in 2013. And most of those are with guns. And that's why I've stepped forward to support background checks. We know that in states that have background checks for handguns, there is a 43% fewer women are shot to death by their intimate partners. And you're talking about... uh background checks on private gun sales? Because if you go to a gun shop, there is already a, a background check. That's right. Check. We have gun. We have background checks existing at all federally licensed armed gun dealers. And what I'm saying is let's do the same for all gun sales. But I also, after the tragedy in Orlando, have stepped forward to say we also need to ban assault weapons. You know, uh, we cannot accept that violence of this scale continue in our country. I am deeply moved by these tragedies, and I feel that the epidemic of gun violence has to change. You know, it's often been really taboo to discuss gun safety here in Vermont, and I'm really proud that I have been leading on this issue and that, frankly, others are starting to say the same thing. I was at a forum last night in Virgen's, and the first question was exactly the same. I am now a single-issue candidate. I will stand strong. I know that this is going to have a lot of response. I've already received tons of uh, unhappy uh, responses from many, many people. But I want you to know you can count on me to lead against uh, the voices uh, from the gun lobby, and I won't back down. You just said you now have become a single-issue candidate. No, Did you mean I, what you, I you're meant hearing is that people I say single-issue voters? Cre- the question... The questioner today said I've become a single-issue candidate. Single-issue voter. Voter. Uh, Sorry. Thank you. Good. I I just wanted to make sure because if that's true, if this is your your single focus, I want to make sure we're getting that right. And I think what you mean is single-issue voters. Thank you for the clarification. I was referring to a question last night at a forum from a woman who said she was a single-issue voter. Got it. So let me ask you one other question, though, because as you said, this has been part of your platform um, for – 
many months. This hasn't come out just since Orlando, your your position on uh, universal background checks, for example. You do on your website, on your platform on this, still say that you would exempt family sales from the background check requirement. Why? If this is a safety issue and if most of the gun homicides in Vermont are domestic homicides, why exempt family sales in terms of the private sales. Why not actually make it universal if that's what you're calling for and say anybody who wants to sell a gun to somebody else, there has to be a background check on that seller or on that buyer. You know, we've gone into the details of how do you do that when a father is actually handing down a gun to a son and have decided that those kinds of transactions should be allowed. I think it's quite different from an abuser uh, receiving a, a weapon. Uh, so I think there is an important distinction there, and that's a place where we have allowed uh, that exception. Why, though? I mean, if a father hands down a car to a son and doesn't just say you can drive on my insurance but says, I'm giving you this car, you still have to hand over the title. There's still a legal transaction. Well, we will have to have some sort of transaction when we have that gun ownership, and we will have to have it responsibly within families. We have a lot of topics to tackle. We're going to talk about taxes, health care, the environment. And let's talk a little bit about education and education policy right now. Uh, property tax rates are projected to drump, jump dramatically in some communities over the next five years, uh, mainly due to dwindling enrollment numbers in communities with very small schools. Do you think Vermont has more public schools than it can afford? So one of the things I will say first off is that I think the education of our children is the most important thing we do for our future. And we have really strong public schools here in Vermont. Frankly, that's uh, something that is really special about our state and incredibly important for our economy and for why people choose to live in Vermont. But we do have to admit that we have significant declining enrollment, and we have to get our arms wrapped around that. Now, what I know is that communities across the state are having very intense, often difficult discussions around how we improve governance for those districts. You know, in my own community where my husband is on the school board, uh, we've had uh, a system where we have seven different school boards, seven different budgets for 1,800 students. Now, when we create one governance structure and one budget, I think that there are potential efficiencies and improvements. For example, we had two middle schools one mile away from one another competing for the same teachers. So I think when we think as a region, there can be new opportunities. That said, around the state, as I've been traveling all over the state, and Jane, it's been an extraordinary experience going to so many parts of our state and speaking with many, many people. And I do talk with teachers and students uh, and many, many family members concerned about this uh, challenge. And what I know is every part of our state is different. Um, issues and, and opportunities for governance change that work in some parts of our state, particularly the more populated pop parts of our state, may not really succeed in other rural parts of our state. And I know that as governor, we need to be flexible going forward with this important conversation. But I also want to say this. We do have to think differently because the world is changing. Our demographics are changing. And I want to say that I think that this could be an opportunity for innovative solutions. And I want to say we don't want to ever close a school. We have terrific community resources. But if, for example, the number of students are too few to continue in an existing, let's say, K-8 through school, what we could think about is sustaining that school as an education center for 
early childhood to, say, third grade, but then using the other half of the building for other community resources like oral health. I want to tell you I was in a school in Burlington where they had four dentist chairs, and this is the Integrated Arts Academy, a place where there was 95% free and reduced lunch, and the school board, of course, there's one school board in all of the city of Burlington, and they could think broadly because of that governance structure, decided to innovate. They decided to make it an arts academy, a a so-called magnet school, and more and more kids from all around Burlington want to go to that school. And there's 30 different languages, and there are four dental chairs. This is a community where new Americans and refugees are settling, and they're getting oral health, preventative health, right where they need it. So parents don't have to take time off from jobs where they probably can't to get them to the dentist. They're getting it there. And you know what? The dentist showed me her graph, and what she showed me is that 85% of what she was doing was preventive care. The point is that we don't only have to use our school buildings as resources for education, but it can be for many needs that are changing in our society, such as our aging demographic and the needs of seniors to have adult care centers, to have preventative health programs. So I want us to be thinking differently through this conversation around how the changing demographics and the reduced enrollment can actually help us think differently about how we use our community resources to address the needs of the community, because there are many, especially with seniors uh, aging in rural homesteads. You mentioned uh, two different examples of of some of the things that are going on, Uh, one in Burlington where there's one school district, so they're making choices for multiple different schools, and in your neck of the woods where you might have two schools a mile apart from each other competing for resources and creating their own budgets without a policy dictated by the state – Is there any way to compel an area with two middle schools who, of course, both want to keep their resources strong and want to be the one middle school that survives? How do you compel the kind of change that you're talking about without some policy that is mandated? So, by the way, those two middle schools aren't competing – they're not going to be competing against one another. We're going to be the school district that one governance structure is going to be able to use teachers between the two schools so that you may not have to hire uh, or let go a teacher because there's too few students, but the teacher can go between those two schools and have, let's say, an accelerated math or a Latin class. Um, So it's really about spreading out the resources, not one competing against another. And that's part of the vision. Um, I think that uh, the requirement Requirement to have these difficult conversations has created extraordinary uh, discussion. The requirement but, through Act 46? Yes, but it's really going to be in the hands of the State Board of Education as to what they accept moving forward. I frankly think that the program, the districts that have moved forward successfully with their votes are frankly the, um, the, the more easy ones that are uh, maybe more obvious and most importantly where the conversation has been going on for years. But there are parts of this state that this is a very new conversation and a very important one, but something that we cannot rush. We should not impose a one-size-fits-all. And as these conversations proceed, just like we do in Vermont, we will continue to grapple. And the State Board of Education is really the deciding factor. The next governor I will be appointing four new members of that board. And I think that's the important role that the governor is going to play in addition to the secretary of education. Let's go to Robert calling in from Berlin. Hi, Robert. Go ahead. Hi. Uh, hi, uh, Ms. Minter. Um, 
I'm a big believer in um, community colleges and vocational training, and uh, I think Vermont's got a, a wonderful uh, system of, uh, of colleges, technical colleges, and, and lots of resources. And uh, it, it, it's troubling, I think, the level of support that the state has given to uh, community colleges over over the last uh, several years um, and, and wondered you know, if, if you uh, feel that um, there was some would could be some way to finance community college um, in, in a in a better way uh, to keep kids from leaving state the state. Robert, thanks for the call. Thank you very much for that call because it's precisely a priority of mine. Um, I will tell you why. You know, I've been traveling and meeting so many people, um, including young people. Uh, you know, there was Amanda, who I met in, in Bennington, who actually had $800 monthly of to pay down her debt, more than her rent. And I know many students and families are settled, saddled with uh, student debt. But I also met a group of uh, activists, young activists in the White River Junction area, and they talked about their peers, their peers who really didn't go on past high school. And they explained to me what they were seeing is that so many of their peers were challenged to get a job, to be able to afford a place to live, to make ends meet, but how many of them were turning to drugs and really fundamentally had lost hope for their future. And it is about the future of our next generation that I am deeply, passionately committed to. And, uh, you know, we do a great job in Vermont of getting kids through high school. We have among the highest high school graduation rates in the country. But when it comes to education or training after high school, we fall to the bottom of the nation. And that is why, Robert, last week I rolled out my plan for tuition-free two years at Community College of Vermont and Ver or Vermont Technical College. Because to your point, this is the opportunity gap we need to fill to give the next generation of Vermonters the opportunity to get qualified for livable wage jobs, to have a career aspiration. My program isn't just about tuition support. It's also going to involve a volunteer mentor, someone who can help the student with the difficult process of uh, applications and filling out financial aid forms, but even more importantly, to be a champion because it's difficult for so many people to, who haven't had that opportunity, especially for first-generation students, uh, which there are many of, to go through this process. So we want to make sure we open the barn doors of opportunity for that generation because it's about all of us. You know, we know that people who get an associate's degree earn on average $12,000 more per year. And with a bachelor's degree, $35,000 more per year. So this isn't just a career opportunity. It's actually for being able to have economic opportunity to the future. And why I know this is so key for Vermont is because I am traveling and meeting all kinds of business owners and hearing repeatedly their biggest problem, they can't find qualified workers. And here we are with all, almost half of Vermont students graduating high school are not continuing their education and training. And I want to connect the dots so that we give the next generation that opportunity and we provide the workforce for the future. There are people in Vermont really focused on connecting this in areas where we have acute workforce 
needs. The workforce and economic opportunity for livable wage jobs is an absolute priority for me. It isn't just post-secondary education. It is also going to be training programs specifically for real jobs, with apprenticeships, with internships, so that we know that we can grow the economy, but also break the cycle of poverty, the generational cycle of poverty, which if we do not address, we will not succeed. And your plan, the two free years uh, for tuition, two tuition free years at CCV or Vermont Technical College, you expect to cost about $6 million in the first year, $12 million in the second year when you have two years worth of students enrolled in the program. And that would be paid for by new fees and taxes on banks operating in Vermont? That's right. The bank franchise fee, it's interesting. uh, If you look at what banks have paid into uh, our state general fund in 2006, uh, it was about 10.5. Five million dollars, and in 2016, it was about 10. It's projected to be about 10.3 million dollars. So that's been really flat over a decade. When I know many, many uh, uh, folks have have seen increasing taxes to support our needs. So I know that banks uh, want to be strong partners. Um, we also don't have in our state a corporate income tax uh, on banks, which uh, does exist in New Hampshire and New York. So I intend to have a robust conversation about how we and partner with the banks to make sure that banks pay their fair share and that students get a fair shake. Today's guest is Democrat Sue Minter. She served in the legislature as a representative from Waterbury. She was instrumental in Vermont's response to Tropical Storm Irene as the state's recovery officer. And she recently stepped down from her post as Secretary of Transportation to run for governor. Suminder, let me give you a couple of uh, sort of rapid-fire question and answers to get through a couple of topics here. Um, One is from Seth, who says, do you support Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton? I supported, endorsed, and voted for Bernie Sanders. And now? And now I am still supporting Bernie. He's still in the race. Uh, We'll see where he goes from here. And will you support Hillary Clinton if she is the eventual nominee? Yes, I will support Hillary. Uh, Whoever is the eventual nominee, I will be strongly in support of. We absolutely have to beat Donald Trump. And I am proud to be supporting whichever nominee wins eventually. On taxes, is there any one specific tax or fee in place today that you would take steps to repeal as governor? You know, I really think what we need to do is look at a very broad tax reform. Uh, when you think about it, we are building our tax code uh, based on uh, a system that was started in the 1950s. And when we add and add and add, it really becomes unwieldy. Our economy has dramatically changed since then. Uh, a system which was originally built around durable goods, when now our economy is two-thirds of which is around services, which we do not tax generally. So I want to look at tax reform and tax fairness. Um, I think there are many. uh, It's interesting because I always hear about when people are discouraged about taxes, what are the ones, the drivers? I do hear property tax uh, as the biggest cost driver for so many um, sort of middle class Vermonters, those who may not qualify for the income sensitivity provisions in the current system. I think we've got to address the rising uh, property tax. That would be the priority. And you do that through education reform? Well, not just education reform. We actually have to look at the system of how we pay for it and how we can actually make a more robust education uh, 
fund so we reduce pressure on the property tax. Maybe look towards the income tax uh, in a greater degree, uh, but think much more uh, carefully about how much we are relying on the property tax for programs that aren't necessarily all just about education, remembering how much goes on in our schools. They are taking on so many of our social challenges. Uh, and I, you know, being in the schools and talking with teachers, it's clear, um, you know, that it isn't just about teaching education as it once was. There are so many social programs. So we need to be thinking more broadly about how we fund those. On marijuana, do you support the legalization of marijuana? I do support the legalization of marijuana, and I'll tell you why. Uh, you know, when I meet with students around the state, especially college students, uh, when I read the Youth Risk Behavior Survey, I know that, A, we're a high-using state of marijuana, and, B, that young people say they have greater access to marijuana than they do to alcohol. That's because... Prohibition uh, hasn't worked. And so I really do support uh, a – I have three key issues. Um, First, how do we regulate and distribute this? I want to make sure that we are getting people to use when they do use – safe products. So I want to use the medical dispensaries as the distributors and build slowly from there. Second, as a mom, I am so concerned that we have robust education and prevention programs. You know, we really haven't been doing substance abuse training uh, prevention programs adequately in our schools now, and we must. And I also know that it works because when we had the the very strong tobacco cessation programs, we saw youth tobacco use, uh, smoking uh, use go down precipitously. So we know education prevention can work. But third, as the former Secretary of Transportation, I'm very concerned about the impaired driving challenge that we already have. And I want to know that our program will include enforcement and a roadside test. How would you go about um, advocacy for getting that roadside test up to speed so that that can be something that is uh, applied to the policy when it's enacted? Well, it is something going on around this country um, and uh, with funding and uh, the states that have been out in front. And of course, let's remember the other states that have taken this on, it has been through an initiative petition. So uh, folks who have to administer programs are trying to catch up with uh, the legalization. Here in Vermont, the reason I think it's so important to think about it through the legislative process is we will actually take on slowly and carefully and thoughtfully what we need to have in place before we act. And for me, it's knowing that research is going on for whether it's a saliva test. uh, That's what they're looking at now. Research is ongoing. I believe that will be solved, and that's what I'll be looking for. The governor recently vetoed an energy siting bill and triggered a special session in the legislature where legislators made some changes to that bill. Tom posted on Facebook, if you had been governor last week, would you have vetoed the the siting bill as Governor Shumlin did? Well, I want to say, first of all, how important I think renewable energy is for our future, and I am an advocate for uh, continuing to expand our renewable energy and especially our efficiency programs, knowing that the cheapest uh, energy we spend is that which we do not uh, need to buy. Uh, the siting bill was a very uh, important conversation that I know happened uh, throughout the legislative session. And it's important because we are rapidly uh, expanding in this uh, in this arena. And um, frankly, I think we are at a bumpy moment and a very important moment to say, 
okay, how do we make sure we do this uh, the Vermont way? That incorporates uh, Vermont's uh, thoughts and engagement in the process. You know, unfortunately, now we've got a problem where communities are pitted against developers, and we're having a very divisive conversation. I'm a planner. (laughs) My whole uh, professional degree is in planning. I spent 10 years working in the Department of Housing, helping communities plan. I was on my own planning commission. I actually believe that we have failed to do adequate planning before this level of investment. So I'd like, I will, as a governor, look at our statewide plan. What are, where are, and how do we map the best resources for wind and solar and hydro and micro hydro and methane digesters? How do we actually look at our state as a whole and make sure every region of the state is taking part in this commitment to transform our energy future, to become energy independent, and to build out our renewable system to meet the energy goals of 90% renewable by 2050. I'll tell you why we need to do this. And, you know, having been in the eye of tropical storm, Irene, I will say I know what that climate change is not just real. It is here. And I believe it is absolutely the critical issue of our generation. You know, after Irene, I was appointed to be president on President Obama's task force on climate preparedness and resilience. I got to talk with and meet with and work with leaders across this country dealing with devastating effects of climate whether it was drought or fire or flood. I went to Colorado in 2013 after their historic floods. I'm seeing this happening. And if we don't change our energy system, our planet really depends on us to step forward. And I know we as Vermonters want to do our part and want to excel. But we know Vermonters want to have a voice. So yes, we need statewide planning. We need regional planning. And then we need to help our towns help be a part of the siting process. And that's what the bill was really working to do. And I'm so glad uh, that they came up with a fix and that we move forward on a much better process and including, I believe, a much better process for the public service board. I'm really going to be looking as governor because I will be appointing the next chair of the Public Service Board, an incredibly important position. And I will be looking for someone who understands Vermont communities, the ethic of engagement, and a customer service, a model where we uh, listen to uh, the, the voices of community members as we plan and move forward on all efforts on all fronts to reach our renewable energy goals and address climate change and support job growth. Renewable energy is our one of our fastest growing sectors of our economy, so I think it's a win, but we need to do it thoughtfully. Well, Naomi in Moncton says, as a delegate to the Vermont Democratic Convention, I heard you speak passionately about protecting Vermont's environment. However, you never addressed the question of the natural gas pipeline that's under construction and will all too soon carry fracked gas to Vermont. What is your position on this pipeline? Do you see a disconnect between Vermont's anti-fracking law and the importation of this fracked gas? You know, thanks for the question. As I said, I am all in for renewable energy, and we have to continue to keep our uh, foot on the accelerator, which is why I think, uh, as the previous question asked, the siting bill is important that we not allow uh, these divisions and fights to set us back. Uh, My vision for the future really does not include an extension or an expansion of uh, investment in infrastructure for fossil fuel. Um, I really believe we need to look to alternatives. You know, we've got uh, cold heat pumps. We've got new technology. We've got 
electrification of the car. We're, I've been working as a secretary of transportation uh, to make sure we have more electric charging stations. I've got a, my electric hybrid because I want to understand not only how to improve uh, the reduction of carbon emissions for every car we drive, but what is needed to really electrify the fleet. I've also been working as the secretary of transportation on a regional greenhouse gas initiative advancement. We have across the region now uh, all of the states of uh, from Maryland to Maine are part of a regional greenhouse gas initi- initiative, which is looking at capping and trading and reducing um, electricity generated uh, emissions. But I want to make sure on the pipeline because you know that that is a policy about statewide policy, and mm-hmm. Naomi's asking specifically about this project that's been so controversial, especially in Moncton and in parts of Addison County. So this project is underway right now, and I said I am not interested in the expansion of this pipeline. Um, This is not the future that I'm interested in building. Would you try to stop it? This is a project that the Public Service Board, I mean, that is why we have a Public Service Board. And it isn't really the role of the governor to tell the Public Service Board what to do. The whole purpose of Section 248 of Act 30 is so that there is an independent review that looks at very specific criteria for analyzing cost. I will say the cost overruns of this project make it questionable for me, but it is really uh, the Public Service Board's decision, and, and it isn't the governor's decision. On health care, what specific ideas do you have for controlling costs while simultaneously making sure that Vermonters have access to high-quality health care? So right now, we are uh, really... For me, the priority for healthcare begins with making sure Vermont Health Connect functions, uh, not only for its uh, the people it serves, and I am one of them, but to make sure we can restore faith in government that has been so undermined. I care deeply about making government function and function well and providing good customer service. That said, now the second key thing is reducing costs because it is health care costs that are really driving and breaking the banks of our families, our schools and driving property taxes, and our school, our state budget. So if we do nothing about the rising cost of health care, we are losing out. Now, let's remember we've gone a long way in the last decade. We used to have over 10% of Vermonters uninsured. Now we are down to just 3.7% uninsured. We've made progress. But how do we reduce reduce costs. We change the system of payments so that providers of health care have integrated community-based care and are focused on making people healthy and having health outcomes and not a system which currently rewards the number of visits, procedures, and prescriptions. We have to really reform how we deliver care and how we pay for it. That's what I'm going to be focused on as governor. Thank you. That's Sue Minter, a candidate for governor. Thank you very much for talking with us today. Great to be here, Jane. Thank you. That was Vermont Edition's Jane Lindholm speaking with Democratic candidate for governor Sue Minter. For more from the candidates for governor, head to VPR.net, where you'll find all of our coverage of the gubernatorial race, including debates between the Republican and Democratic candidates, AMAs with each of the candidates, and the latest news on the campaigns. And, of course, tune into Vermont Edition on Wednesday, August 10th at noon and 7 p.m. for results and analysis of Tuesday's primary. I'm Meg Malone. And I'm Sam Gale Rosen. Thanks for listening.